You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. Now, we think back to the time of Jesus Christ. To us, we grew up hearing his name. To us, we grew up hearing, you know, that he is God or he is the Son of God. We grew up, you know, magnifying and holding this name of Jesus way up here. And we already knew and expected that that's who he is and that's what he is. But in Jesus' lifetime, it was not like that. To us, everybody knows the name of Jesus. Even if it's only being used as a curse word, they may know very little about it, but at least they've heard that name of Jesus before. But in his time, you would have only heard that name if you had grown up with him, if you were in his village, or if you had done business with his, with his dad as a carpenter. Or a little bit later on, after Jesus begins his ministry, if you had heard about his healing, or if you had heard about his revolutionary teaching, only then would you have heard of Jesus' name, but then you have to grapple with this concept. Is this just another quote-unquote Messiah that's come along and trying to draw people away? I mean, that sort of stuff has happened in your lifetime, hasn't it? Messiahs have come along and have taken people off to Central America and they all killed themselves. Messiahs have come along and taken people off out into Utah and come along and, and taken people off into other places and called themselves Messiahs, and some of them have ended, many of them have ended very, very badly. And so if you lived during that time, you had to wonder, is this Jesus guy another one of those? Just another Johnny-come-lately uh, who's got some charisma to him, uh, who's able to perform some neat tricks uh, and is able to draw a crowd, or is he really what he says he is? I think sometimes it's easy for us to criticize uh, unfairly the people of uh, the New Testament um, who rejected Jesus. Now, we have the complete revelation and written word of Jesus Christ. They did not have that then. But what they did have there in Israel was the man himself. They also had his miracles. And he performed those miracles in Israel for the purpose of convincing Israel that he was legitimate. Because who else could heal the way he healed in the vast numbers that he healed without any other explanation? Who else could do that except he come from God? The Pharisees, they grappled with that tremendously. They saw this man who was so loved. There was hardly anything about him that was to not be loved. And man, that made them jealous because it took the people's eyes off of them as the spiritual idols and took their, put their eyes on Jesus Christ, who was not an idol, but who is God himself, where their worship was supposed to be. Suddenly, the, the, the Sanhedrin and all the Pharisee, Pharisees got demoted once Jesus walked into the room. Think about that. Would the preacher get demoted when, if Jesus were to walk into the room? I think we ought to willingly demote ourselves. If Jesus were to walk in the room, I tell you what, I wouldn't stand up on this stage much longer. I'd be extraordinarily intimidated to get up and to preach the word of God in front of Jesus Christ himself. I would say, no, 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 man, you're here. You take care of this. 
uh, I want to hear what you have to say because it's it, I would think it would be more powerful coming from you. And of course, if you knew it was Jesus, you'd be more apt to listen to him than you are to me. Um, go ahead and continue to snooze along until Jesus you know, comes along. But for the Pharisees, man, they not only did they get demoted with the presence of Jesus, uh, but, you know, the attention was off of them. They were no longer these spiritual idols. And so they had to grapple with, is this man really what he says he is? If he is, he is countering much of what we say. So if he is right, then that means we are wrong. And my whole way of life, up to my adult male manhood where I am, my whole way of life is wrong. And I've got to change. And that is a scary thing for an adult to come to the conclusion of that my whole way of thinking and my whole way of life is based on a lie and it is wrong. Now, there is much of what the Pharisees, you know, that they memorized large swaths of the Old Testament. Uh, they um, wanted to go and worship and offer sacrifices in the temple. And those things were commanded to them to do. But they added so much more to it to be right with God. They had all of these extra rules and laws and traditions of men that were not biblical. So they had a big decision to make. To us, we've heard it all along. This is who Jesus was. To them, this is brand new. Now, they should have recognized in Jesus the Old Testament prophecies, but many of them did not. And so in here in the story in Luke 7, we find a Pharisee inviting Jesus over for dinner. You invite people over to your house for dinner. Um, for a variety of reasons, maybe. Maybe uh, you want to build a better relationship with those people. Uh, you want to become better friends. You want to find out more about each other. Maybe there'll be an extra compatibility there between you that you'll be able to do more and more things together in the future. Or maybe you invite somebody over dinner to, to heal a broken relationship. And so you want to have that personal one-on-one -on -one time to either deal with something or to uh, reconcile a relationship. But you invite folks over sometimes just to be friendly, uh, to let them know that you care. I heard recently of a person who <clears throat> was visiting a church, and they said that um, they didn't stay in that church for very long because everybody just kept asking them when they were going to join the church. And people were, you know, they weren't really taking the time to get to know them or anything. The only thing they cared about was when they were going to join the church, when they were going to join the church. And, uh, and I can kind of understand that from both sides. You know, uh, do you really care about me or are you just interested in getting something from me or in me joining the church? But from the other standpoint, I also understand what it's like to invest your time and efforts into people only for them to just fade away. Uh, and, uh, and so being able to see that from, from maybe from both sides, but Jesus here, he's the real deal. He is legitimate. We know that. And so he, he's invited over to this Pharisee's house for dinner. Now, you're going to, as we read through the scriptures earlier, you're going to see there's some common courtesies that uh, was not extended to Jesus, which would normally be extended to a visitor. Normally, when you have visitors over for dinner, and coming over for dinner in ancient times was a different affair than it is for us today. Uh, today, you come in, you sit maybe in a sitting room or something like that, and when it's time to eat, or sometimes we might just congregate in the kitchen while food's getting done. That's usually how it happens at my house anyways, because the food's usually not done uh, when you get there. And so we all kind of stand around the kitchen and, uh, while the food's getting finished, <clears throat> and then we all go and sit down at a table where we sit upright, you know, and we sit, what, 20 inches off the ground, and uh, we're sitting upright, and we have the plates and the spoons, silverware, and all that stuff, uh, which was very different from how they did it then. Then they would have these real low tables. 
And uh, there were not chairs at these real low tables. Instead, there were often little beds uh, around this table. Sometimes you would actually be sitting on the floor itself uh, on cushions. And you would recline on your side with your head closest to the table. Oftentimes they would, you know, uh, be sitting like this uh, up against the table. And I thought about that as I was reading it. And I thought, man, that sounds miserable. I would not enjoy eating that way. You ever try to eat in bed? You ever try to eat your cereal? Uh, maybe I shouldn't use this as an illustration. You ever try to eat cereal in bed? There is not a, well, let's just put it this way. I end up with a lot of milk on me. <laughs> On my, I'll run it on my chin and stuff. Uh, it's hard to eat in bed. It's hard to eat in a hospital bed, right? You try to sit up as best you can, but it's hard because now you've got a distance to get over here to your mouth without dropping anything. I can't imagine laying down on my side with prop my head up and trying to eat without silverware, you know, trying to eat on my bread and, you know, dipping it in my sauce or whatever it was they were doing and, and eating it. That doesn't seem comfortable to me, but that's the way it was for their culture. That's how they ate with their heads closest to the table and their feet. The feet, um, their feet would be, uh, you know, out farther away from the table and they would sit around the table uh, just like that, uh, enjoying a meal together. There was also another different aspect to the way things were done in their time. Uh, if I were to come and to walk into your house today, you probably would not appreciate it very much uh, if I had not called or texted first to let you know to get out of your PJs and to fix your hair or something like that, or even if I hadn't knocked, if I just opened the door and walked in, and some people might be okay with that, most others probably not okay with that. But in this time period, it wasn't that. It wasn't like that. Uh, it was more commonplace for people to enter in, in, in other people's houses and go and come, uh, and it was a little more commonplace for that. And that might help maybe uh, the events that occur here make more sense. So Jesus is there. He's eating at this Pharisee's table. The Pharisee did not offer to wash his feet, as was commonplace. Usually a servant, uh, sorry, a servant would come uh, with a, a bowl and uh, with a cloth and would wash your feet because you've been walking out on the not paved streets in your sandals and getting all sorts of camel nastiness on your toes, right? And so they would come and you'd, they'd wash your feet and then they'd dry it off and you would continue on your way into the house and you'd be able to rest and we wouldn't have to worry about smelling your nasty feet throughout the entire meal, uh, ruining uh, the porridge for us. He didn't offer Jesus that. He didn't offer any oil to anoint his head with. He didn't offer him the traditional greeting that uh, they would offer as someone entered their home of kissing them on the cheek. Of course, I don't expect you to kiss me on the cheek when I come into your home. In fact, I'd appreciate it if you did not. Um, a handshake is fine, a hug if it must, but, um, you know, I, I definitely don't want the kiss on the cheek when I walk in. I'm not Greek. I don't even have a little Greek in me that I'm aware of. I'm mostly English, and I don't think they did that. He did not get these common courtesies. So what, what do I see here from this information? One, Jesus and the Pharisees weren't completely at odds yet. Now, we know it's going to get da deadly dangerous here soon. Uh, they're going to be out for blood soon, but it's not quite that bad yet. But he also isn't showing much respect for this man either. He isn't showing him common courtesies, let alone that to a master or teacher. So we look at this morning, who loves me more? You know, at home, we ask that question, who loves me more? You know, and of course, me, 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 everybody says me. Uh, sometimes in the car, we'll say, who loves Carter? 
And of course, everybody's supposed to say me, right? Uh, who loves mommy? Of course, everybody's supposed to say me and some don't just so that they can, you know, be difficult and get the laughs and stuff. Um, and then of course there's at night when I say, okay, I love you. Good night. I love you more. No, I love you more. No, I love you most. No, I love you mostest. I almost put, I love you mostest up there. Uh, but I didn't want to get uh, the scorning looks of my improper grammar. So, um, who, who loves me more? Of course, you know where I'm going with this in this passage. Let's go back to Luke seven and let's read. <clears throat> One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. <clears throat> it says that one of the Pharisees desired to eat with him, desired that he would eat with him. So the relationship here was not totally bad or antagonistic yet. He wanted to inspect Jesus. He wanted a closer look. I've heard about this man, so I'm going to invite him over for dinner, and I'm going to talk to him, and I'm going to try to get the measure of this man, Jesus. Of course, while the Pharisee is sitting there trying to get the measure of the man, Jesus already has the measure of the Pharisee. As the Pharisee is sitting there and trying to discern what Jesus is thinking, whether Jesus is legitimate, and you can tell that the Pharisee doesn't think Jesus is legitimate. Because in one of the following verses, <clears throat> in verse 39, it says, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him. If Jesus was legit, if he was really God, if he was really a prophet, he would already know who this woman is, and he would never let this woman touch him, let alone associate with him or be near him. So we see uh, they're not quite antagonistic yet, but he certainly doesn't trust Jesus. He wants to check him out. So they sat down there at meal or laid down at meal. And behold, a woman in the city, which is a sinner, a woman of the city, which was a sinner. We think about what is just being spoken here. He's sitting down to meet and a woman comes in. Now to us, that would be very strange, would it not? It'd be strange if we were sitting at meal and my front door opened and some strange woman came in and she was weeping. Uh, she was crying and she came in and crawled on her hands and knees down underneath of our table. Um, again, I'm, just, I'm trying to imagine this uh, and us just sitting there and accepting this, right? I crawled down underneath the table. And uh, of course, to get to my feet, she'd probably have to take my socks off, you know. Uh, and of course, that would be highly inappropriate and very weird, right? And we, she would not make it into the dining room, except we would be standing and trying to figure out what's going on. But nevertheless, this woman comes into the house, which, which lets us know that this was not totally out of the ordinary, that they didn't get up and the, the guards didn't come and, or the dogs didn't come chase her out of the house as she came in. But I also want you to notice a little bit more about this woman as she enters in. It says that <clears throat> she was a woman in the city, which was a sinner. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly what sin. I think we can all surmise as to what it's referring to. I don't think that she was an embezzler. Um, I don't think that's what the Bible is referring to here. This is talking about an outward sin that everybody pretty much knows about. That when uh, somebody sees this woman, she bears upon her this title probably a physical or sexual sin. 
uh, probably is a, a, a woman who sells herself for the pleasure of others and for making money for herself. And I think we can all generally understand um, what this woman's sin probably was. But it was well known. It wasn't a secret sin. It wasn't something that only her or her family knew about. It was well known. Even to this guy knew all about this woman and what kind of life she lived. She comes in. And what else does it say about her? When she'd heard that Jesus sat at meat at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster box of ointment. This alabaster box, this is a box which was made uh, for the sole purpose of, of course, holding a liquid. Uh, this liquid that it held, uh, the alabaster box was not meant to open and close, open and close like modern perfume bottles. It didn't have the sprayer on it. Uh, it was a closed container. And then if you wanted to get to the ointment that was inside of it, there was only one way to get it into it. Just like the old piggy banks, there was only one way to get the coins out of the piggy banks. What'd you have to do? You had to break it. There was only one way to get in. Once it got full, you broke it, and then you had all the change out of it. Now, today's piggy banks are much different than that, aren't they? And this alabaster ointment was much like that. I've read that it was uh, thin and it was tall, and it had a long neck. And this neck... You would break off the end of it, and then, uh, like like a olive oil container or something you would pour olive oil with these days, and then you would have that long neck. You could pour this ointment out and use it. Sometimes this ointment would be used um, on someone who was dead. If you were wrapping their body, you would take this ointment, which was very precious, in other words, very expensive, and you would pour this ointment upon those rags that you wrapped them with, and it would help to preserve the body and to keep it from stinking for a little bit while longer. And you would pour this costly stuff that was a one-time use only. Uh, you know, you wouldn't take your uh, $200 perfume bottle, if you spend that much on perfume, and take the top off of it and leave it sitting there. One, it would stink up the house and your husband would probably uh, be very upset with you. But two, uh, it would dry up. It would evaporate into the air. And all that money you spent, whether it was five bucks or 200 bucks on this perfume, is now evaporated and gone. So you couldn't leave the top off of this ointment. Once you broke the top off, it was a single use thing only. And it was expensive. And she brought it for Jesus. What else does it say about her? It says, and stood at his feet behind him. Again, we talked about as they as they reclined, and you saw in the picture there, you know, him reclining here on this bed, uh, it would make more sense that your head would be closer to the table where the food is than your feet being closer to the table, right? You know, we do it differently. We sit on our chair and our feet go under the table. They did it differently. Their head had to be close to the table so they could reach the food, where therefore their feet would be sticking out a little further away from the table. So it may stands to reason she probably couldn't get to his head. So she went to the place where she could, which was his feet. We continue on. What else does it say about her? <clears throat> stood behind, stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Think about what she is doing here. Washing his feet with tears. You know that passage in, in the Old Testament that talks about God collecting or counting our tears in a bottle. Uh, there's an Old Testament passage. And I remember hearing my pastor say that several times. And I thought, where is he getting that from? And somehow I'd managed to not notice that verse ever <laughs> as I was reading through it. I was like, oh, sure enough, that is in the Old Testament. That he counts our tears in a bottle. You know, that's, that's a strange thing. Who does that? Um, in the Old Testament, 
it was not a strange thing. Even during this time period, it was commonplace to actually collect your tears. And you would collect them and keep them in a bottle. Your tears uh, were, were in that, in that sense, valuable. Now she's coming in and she's weeping. Why is she weeping? Well, you could look at it one way and say she's weeping because of the guilt of her lifestyle. Or you could look at it another way and say she's weeping because she's met Jesus. We don't know that this is the first time that she's met Jesus. It's quite possible that she's met Jesus before and that she's heard him preach, and that she has been forgiven, and that she has gotten things right before him, and the, the, the overwhelming lifting of guilt and the burden from off her shoulders was now coming through. Maybe she took off and she went back home to go and to get this alabaster box, or maybe she went and sold something so she could go and purchase this alabaster box after she had gotten saved, after she had met Jesus. And then she wanted to go and find him to go and pay back to him as best she could for what he had done for her. And she arrives here at this Pharisee's house weeping. She is overcome by her emotions, overcome either with guilt and sorrow over her sin or overcome with joy because of her freedom from it now. And not only that, the freedom from the guilt of it. Think about it. This woman had a reputation, no? This Pharisee knew exactly who that woman was and at least what one of her sins were. And so she was labeled by him and probably everybody else, labeled with this one thing, and she could not escape that label. But do you know what Jesus provided for her? Not only did he provide an escape from that label, he provided, and, and, and granted, there might be people who still looked upon her as that, but she knew she wasn't that anymore. She had been saved. Those sins had been forgiven. And now she comes to Jesus' feet being overwhelmed at the forgiveness of sins, overwhelmed at the reconciliation that she had to God, overwhelmed at the future hope that she had while living on this earth and the eternal hope that she had, she came to Jesus overwhelmed and she brought to him these things, her tears, which, you know, I think were more valuable than even that alabaster box of ointment. Oh, if only I had more money to give to God. Only if I had more talent to give to God. Oh, only if I could be used by God in some grand, majestic way. But what does God really want? A broken and a contrite heart. That's what He wants from you and I. He doesn't need us to offer some big gift to reconcile us to God. That's not what He requires of us. A broken and a contrite heart. He desires those tears from us. It can be hard to get those tears to come out sometimes, yeah? And then it can be hard to get those tears to stop. Sometimes when emotion gets a hold of you, it's hard to keep those tears in. Don't let, don't stop or hinder the Holy Spirit from having control of your emotion. Let, when, when, when God gets a hold of you, and when he wants to use you, and when he wants to correct you, and when he wants to lead you or comfort you, don't hinder him in those ways. 
The first part of the story we look at here is the sinful woman anoints. So she took the tears, whether or not she was weeping onto his feet or whatever the case was. I don't know. She kissed his feet. I hope you don't expect me to be doing that anytime soon. She kissed his feet and then she anointed them with that ointment. That which the Pharisee was supposed to have done to his head, here she is doing it for his feet. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Next we see the proud Pharisee objects. Now he doesn't object out loud, does he? Think about the irony here. Here you have two people sitting in that room with Jesus, at least, no doubt there were others. But at least these two people in that room with Jesus, you have one who is a proud religious person. No doubt they had been religious their whole lives. No doubt from the time they were a tiny child, they had been memorizing scripture and they had been living piously and they had been doing exactly as they were told they were to do in synagogue school every Sabbath day. They were doing exactly what he was. He was doing exactly what he thought he was supposed to be doing. So here was this quote unquote good and righteous man sitting there at the table. On the other hand, you have this woman who is a known sinner. Everybody knows that this is the the woman of the streets. This is not the kind of woman that you want your son to be dating or marrying. Uh, This was not that kind of woman, but yet here she is. One faring sumptuously, the other at the feet of Jesus Christ, weeping and crying, probably tears of joy and release. And we have Jesus in the middle. One at his head, one at his feet. And Jesus right in the middle. What is the Pharisee's objection? He goes from being the questioner to being hostile in his own heart. He began to doubt whether Jesus was actually a prophet because if Jesus could see this woman's heart, you know what Jesus would do? He would condemn her just like I have. Stop and think about that for a second. Have you been guilty of that Pharisee's same mindset? Oh, if so-and-so only knew what this person had done or said. Oh, if you only knew, then you would condemn them like I condemn them. By the way, it's not my job to condemn anybody. That doesn't mean that it's not my job to speak truth about sin, because it is. But if if something I say from the word of God, condemns you or convicts you of sin in your life, it's not me convicting you or condemning you. It is the word of God. It is Jesus Christ that is condemning or convicting you. So in his own heart, he begins to doubt. And he wishes that that Jesus could see this woman for who she really was. But what ends up happening is Simon... The Pharisee, his heart, ends up getting exposed. And so he says, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. Look at verse 40. Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. In other words, I have something to say to you. And if somebody comes up and they say, I have something to say to you, or I have something I want to talk about, <laughs> That's not usually a good sign, is it? <laughs> That's not usually going to be a, a, a calm, laid-back conversation. 
uh, it's usually going to be about something serious. Uh, anytime I get a, a text or something about, hey, I want to meet and talk with you about this or that, usually it strikes fear in my heart. Like, oh, what did I do this time? That's my first thought. What did I do this time? Or what didn't I do this time? Now, it's usually not bad, but uh, that's, that's how it affects me anyways. It's like, well, can't you just give me a little nugget, like what it's going to be about, so I don't sit here and stress about it for days about what it could possibly be. And Jesus says, I have something I want to say to you. And he responds with, say on. Well, what is it? What do you need to say? And so Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, responds here. Jesus responds. The master teacher responds. And you know what good teachers often do? They ask questions. Why? Because a statement will often cause the students to listen for a short time and then fade off. A declarative is not nearly as interesting as an interrogative. An interrogative sentence causes you to think, right? I know Colton was learning about declarative and interrogative and imperative sentences. An interrogative sentence causes you to think because now something's expected of you. So good teachers ask lots of questions because it draws everybody back in and everybody suddenly thinks, oh no, I hope he doesn't call on me because I wasn't paying attention and I don't know the answer. Uh, so it, he is going to tell a story, give an illustration, which is another great mark of a te good teacher. He's going to give an illustration and then he's going to ask a question. Are you ready for your quiz? Here's his illustration. He says there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. All right, we think about this. We have a creditor. This is somebody who is able to lend money. So they're wealthy. They have money to lend that they don't need to use as capital for their business. So they have extra money. He lends money to this guy and he lends 500 pence to this guy. This guy probably is also pretty wealthy. If he can afford to uh, loan or sorry, to borrow this much money, then he probably also has land or other things to back it up. This guy uh, only got uh, 50 pence. Both of them are debtors to the creditor. Both of them owe him money, but neither of them can afford to pay. Who's the debtor? They both are. And in this time period, if you could not pay, there was no bankruptcy. There was no other way to make payment other than to sell yourself or your family members or to lose your property or your freedom. It was very harsh if you are unable to pay who you owed money to. And so you have these two men, they are not able to pay. Now it's quite possible that they could lose family members as servants or even themselves as servants or even be thrown into debtor's prison until they were able to pay somehow the debt that they owed. But the creditor decided, you know what? I'm not going to put them through that. I'm not going to put their families through that. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to forgive the debt. So on paper, what that means is I'm going to absolve it. I'm going to cross it out and mark it as paid in full. No longer will they have that on their credit report, so to speak. No longer is that debt going to be hanging over their heads. But even beyond that, the guilt and the weight of that debt isn't going to hang over theirs or their family's heads for years to come. There's not going to be the consequences of that debt upon them or their family. They can walk out of here freely forgiven. So he goes on, verse 42, And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, he says, <clears throat> which one of them will love him 
most. You think about it. They were both debtors. They were both headed to the same consequence, more than likely, while one owed 10 times more than the other. Which one loved the creditor most? Well, probably the one that was forgiven the most. That's what Simon said. Simon, who probably at this point recognized the trap that he was in in this question, said, well, probably the one that that owed the most. And Jesus says, you're right. But let me ask you this. Do you think that the love of the man who owed the most was equivalent solely to the amount that he owed? No. Think about it. Yeah, he might have owed the most. And he might have been forgiven the most. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he returned it in love the most. Why? Because he might not have been aware. He might not have been consciously aware of what he, was been, what he had been forgiven of. You see, in the parable, we see two people. Well, we see three people. There is the creditor, who is Jesus. There is the one who owes the most. This, of course, is the woman who has committed a great number of sins, and here she is getting forgiveness of those sins. Who then do you think is the one who owes the least in this parable? I wonder if Simon realized that he was a part of this parable. He was the one who, quote-unquote, owed the least. He was the good guy who didn't owe nearly as much. She loved Jesus immensely, so immensely that she was willing to go out and to get this alabaster bottle of ointment and to to, to just throw her pride to the side and to come into this man's house and to behave in such a way, weeping and crying in front of all these people and doing this to Jesus' feet, that which was unorthodox even in that time, that was an outward expression of the extent of her love for this man. But yet you have the quote-unquote good guy, the good man, who hadn't done all sorts of horrible, terrible things, who owed less of a sin debt. But he loved Jesus so very little because he was not aware of his sin. He was unaware of his sin. In reality, the amount of their love was equivalent to the amount of their awareness of their sin. Maybe your sin last year was great. Is your awareness of it and the forgiveness of it just as great? Good people often have a tendency to forget their sin. Because I'm generally good, because I'm mostly better than the other people that we, we arbitrarily pick. Because I'm better than most, therefore the little sins that I do commit aren't really all that bad, and so I don't need to focus or worry about those. Unless we fall into one of the big ones, then then we finally have to worry about them. Before God's eyes, this woman who had lived a life of immorality was in sin and on her way to hell the same way as this Pharisee is in sin and on his way to hell. And he is trying to point this out to the Pharisee. You're both debtors. And here's the thing. No matter who was in the most debt, They both couldn't pay. Neither of them could pay. Let me ask you this. Maybe you grew up in church. 
Maybe you've been a pretty good person your whole life. You haven't gone out and committed any of the big things, at least what we imagine to be big things, even though lying is an abomination in God's eyes. And well, you've committed that one. So uh, I guess you have committed one of the big things in God's eyes. But you haven't committed any of the real big sins. And so you've been a, generally a, a pretty good person. Let me ask you this. Have you neglected to be aware of your sin? Could you possibly do enough good things to cover your own sins, no matter how small the account may be? And the answer to that question always is going to be no. No matter how good you've lived of your life, you are a debtor. And you could never pay the sin debt that you owe to God. You could never cover it. You could never settle that account, no matter how hard you try. Because there is only one thing that can settle that account. It is that the creditor forgive the debt. And how does that happen? The creditor forgives the debt. At the moment that we get saved. So we get on to verse number 44. <clears throat> verse number 44, we had... The sinful woman anoints, the proud Pharisee objects, the master teacher responds, and now the mighty God, as he is called in Isaiah, the mighty God concludes. Look at verse, 40, uh, verse number 44, and he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, so you can see what's going on in the room. He, he turns and he looks at the woman, but he's still talking to Simon over here. He said, seest thou this woman? <laughs> Of course he saw the woman. That's why he was thinking in his heart, if Jesus only knew who this woman was. Simon, are you looking at this woman? Now, I think it goes deeper than that. Of course Simon saw the woman. Of course, the whole room knew she was there. Everybody was watching the spectacle that was going on at the dinner table. But was he seeing the woman the same way Jesus was seeing the woman? No. You see this woman, I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, had not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore, I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, she is the, great, the greater debtor, are forgiven. For she loved much. Now, is this verse saying that her sins were forgiven because of her great amount of love? Well, no, you see a, a semicolon there in between those two statements. It is not a continuation of the exact same thought. In fact, just in case you thought that, it's a good thing that verse number 50 is added on there, where it says, thy faith hath safety. It's not because she loved so greatly. It's not because she showed up to this room and did these great acts you know, great conspicuous acts that caused her to be saved. No, it was her faith that saved her. And in fact, it was her faith which brought about the forgiveness. It was her faith then that responded in this immensely loving manner. It was her faith that resulted in this love. What is God really pointing out to Simon here and to us? You have two sinners, two debtors, one greatly in debt, the other not so much. This is a good religious person. 
but only one of them is walking away forgiven. And it's not the one who was a good person who had less to forgive. It was the one who was aware of their sin, the one who was aware of eternity, the one who was aware of who Jesus Christ was and believed in him. It was the one who had their sins forgiven by Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This is the one who is going to walk out of that dining room at the end of the evening forgiven, cleansed, filled with joy and release of the guilt and the pain and the sorrow of past sins and life. She may still carry with her on the street that reputation for a while of how she used to live. And she may say over and over again, yeah, but that's not me anymore. I'm not that person anymore. I don't do those things anymore. And she may have to struggle now to find a new lifestyle to pay for herself. But you know what's going to end up happening? She's going to get a new reputation. She's one of those followers of Jesus. She says she's changed. We'll wait and see. Only time will tell, the skeptic will say. She says that she's one of these new born-again Christians. Well, Christian, the term wasn't used yet. But she says she's one of these new born-again followers of Jesus. We'll see if this is just another phase, if she goes back to her old ways of life. Ultimately, I don't know what ends up happening to her. The Bible doesn't give us that information. I don't believe that this is Mary Magdalene. I believe that that was a separate event, two different events, uh, of a very similar thing happening to Jesus. Why, did that, why would that cause us trouble to, to believe that two people might react to Jesus in the same way after being forgiven of a great amount of sin. Simon, do you even see this woman? Religious person, when you look at the homeless and when you look at the, the person who is addicted to drugs or to alcohol or other things, when you look at somebody who has wearing on the outside the effects and the consequences of sin in their lives, it's easy for us to look down upon them. It's easy for us to push them off to the side and to just relegate them to the consequences in a life and an eternity of sin. But Simon, do you see this woman? No, no, no. Do you see this woman the way I see this woman? Do you see this woman as, yes, a sinner? But now, a sinner saved by grace. That's what grace is. It is giving this woman not what she deserves, but what God in his infinite wisdom wants to give her. He wants to give her good things, not because she earned them, because of her faith. He wants to forgive her of her sins, not because she turned her life around, but because he wants to help her turn her life around with his power. He looks at this woman and he says, Thy sins are forgiven. It can be hard for us to truly believe that we are forgiven. Some folks need to be persuaded of it. But understand this, if your sins of the past are constantly being upon your mind, it is not God that is bringing up your sins of the past and whacking you over the head with them. It is the devil or it is your own flesh that is bringing up the sins of the past. Your lies, your wicked thoughts, your theft, your hatred. It is not God that brings those things up. If you have sought forgiveness of them, he has cleansed them. Let me ask you this morning, have you ever 
had forgiveness of sins from God. Some might say, oh yeah, I pray for, for God to forgive me all the time. But have you ever prayed to get saved? Have you ever prayed and placed your faith and your trust in what Jesus Christ did to save you from those sins? And to wipe away the guilt of those sins. Have you ever been saved? That one time, have you ever been saved? As Christians, yes, we are supposed to seek forgiveness of sins on a daily basis. But I can tell you this. As an unsaved person, you're never going to see forgiveness of sins. No matter how many times you ask. Until you come to Jesus. Like this woman did. Now you don't have to come and wash his feet with your hair. Or your tears. But you need to come to him in faith, believing he is who he says he is. Believing that he did what the Bible says he did. Not just the death on the cross and the, the, the burial and the resurrection, but the reason behind it. The shedding of blood for the remission of sins. That is where forgiveness begins. That was the difference between this woman and this Pharisee, this good man. The remission of sins was here. She could walk out that door and notice what he says in the last verse. He looks at her and he says, thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. You see that, that imperative verb, go. <laughs> you know, we're going to get back to dinner here. But you can go ahead and leave. Go. But it's not just get out. It's go in peace. I don't know. But I can't help but wonder whether, who was the most at peace after this encounter? This woman or Simon, the Pharisee? After Jesus left, after they both left from the presence of Jesus Christ, this woman was at peace. He says, go in peace. You don't have to walk down the street anymore knowing that that's who you are, because it's not anymore. That's who you were. It may take some time for others to come around to that. And it may even take you some time to come around to that. But that's not who you were or are anymore. That's who you were. Now you can go in peace, knowing that the guilt of that is no longer laid up on your shoulders. You're not going to have to answer for that now. And so you can stand up tall. No matter how others might derive, uh, be derisive of you, no matter how much others may still try to label that with you, you know that between you and God, there is nothing now. Tomorrow, if you sin again, you get that dealt with, and then there is nothing between you and God once more. And so you can go in peace. But what about Simon? Did he go in peace? I wonder if Simon slept well that night. And he came face to face with the creator of the universe. He came face to face with a master teacher who knew how to use illustrations and then pointed questions that trapped you so that it left you just agreeing with him and thinking and wondering what he said, what, he, what she did. I wonder if Simon hardened his heart after this and became one of the most vocal and outgoing opponents of Jesus, or if Simon became one of the Sanhedrin or one of the Pharisees who secretly supported Jesus or maybe even outwardly supported Jesus. I wonder what happened to Simon after this. He looked at me and he said to me, thy sins are forgiven. 
Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. And he has said the same thing to you if you have been saved this morning, if you are a Christian. And you can know that you are a Christian. It isn't a, it isn't a, a game of guessing. It isn't a, a game of a balance to where your good outweighs your bad and you'll never really know until you stand before God. Why would God leave us to that pain and anguish of not knowing? He told us we can know if we have Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't know for sure that you are saved, if you're watching and you don't know for sure that you are saved, would you get that dealt with today? Would you get forgiveness of sin, the sin nature that you were born with so you can get that new man on instead of the old man, the sins that you've committed throughout your life, and for future forgiveness of sins as well. Christian, maybe you need to have a renewed vision towards sin. Instead of excusing pride or arrogancy, Instead of excusing lies, instead of excusing bad attitudes or unforgiving spirits or being ungracious or unmerciful, instead of excusing our sin, thinking that we're elevated enough spiritually that we don't need forgiveness of sins, maybe we should, instead of viewing ourselves like Simon did, not in need of God's forgiveness, view ourselves the way the woman does. Because the fact is, we all have an immense debt of sin. And none of us can pay our debts. That is why we needed Jesus Christ. Christian, maybe, maybe you need to do something about the way you look at others this morning. Maybe the Lord's worked in your heart. Would you get it dealt with? Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. <clears throat> As the piano plays, I want you to think inside. Let the Spirit move. If the Lord's worked in your heart, would you settle it now between you and him? Maybe there's unconfessed sin. Well, unconfessed sin sure is a, is a killer of our spiritual lives, isn't it? If there's unconfessed sin, would you get that dealt with between you and God now so that you can rise up and go in peace? If you're here this morning or watching and you don't know for sure that you're saved, would you get that settled this morning? Would you reach out to me or walk up here to the front? Reach out to me over the internet in some way or call so that I can talk to you and tell you what the Bible has to say about salvation. As the piano plays, let's all stand to our feet. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.